This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, again, just Dr. Wang and myself, we wanted to do a a quick wrap-up episode to kind of put a bow on the recent conversations we've been having about the interview season for the 2022-23 interview season uh, and all these changes to the neurosurgery application process. Um, it's, it's been a great uh, opportunity to talk to folks across the country and especially people in various different roles in the academic and administrative structure within their own departments and within organized neurosurgery to get different perspectives on how these changes came to be, which ones were kind of foisted upon us by external uh, American medical organizations, and which changes were homegrown within neurosurgery, so to speak, in response to those changes, as well as uh, everything going on in the past few years after COVID and the rise of virtual interviews. Um, Dr. Wang, I know that myself, I've had a great time getting to talk with our guests, Dr. Jason Schwalb, Stacey Wolf, Dan Barrow, and Dan Resnick. And it really has you know, led me to reconsider some of the initial impressions we had about some of the new things this interview season, uh, in particular, the return to in-person interviews versus some still being virtual, and of course, these preference signalings or likes, as Dr. Resnick said. Um, anything that you've noticed since we started all these conversations that maybe you've had your mind changed on or, or at least a little bit more open in, in your approach to what's coming around the corner this year? Yeah, you know, JP, thanks again for putting this together because it's been such an insightful series and, and I've learned a lot. And I, again, want to thank our guests over the last four or five episodes who actually were were relatively honest and open. Uh, I was always worried that people would not want to really speak their mind about these things, especially Stacy and Jason and, and Dan Resnick. And it's always worried me, you know, that I, I go back to how you and I started this podcast and you know, the patina of being a neurosurgeon. And, and I was reading uh, a recent article about how there's an investigation into the death of this um, Navy SEAL trainee. Did you did you see that article about this in your yeah, time? Yeah, you know, I, I haven't read that article, but I, I listened to a number of uh, podcasts that kind of follow some SEAL activity or their ex-SEALs who run them. And so I've heard a lot of discussion about this case. Yeah, so maybe we can talk about that because I think it serves as a mirror that everybody's familiar with the concept of Hell Week and BUDS and um, the selection and early training process for Navy SEALs. And apparently there was some new leadership that came about, about, I don't want to say like 2013 or so, and that sparked this kind of concept of, and I, I shudder to even use the term, but like this sort of like caustic, uh, toxic environment kind of thing. And then, um, unfortunately, one of the trainees died, um, you know, in, in the Hell Week selection process. I can't remember if it was rhabdomyolysis, rhabdomyolysis or uh, dehydration or arrhythmia. It was something like that, right? And now they're having some investigations at the, at the highest levels as to how the training should be undertaken, if the selection process is too harsh, or has it even really changed over the last 10 years? Is, is that... Is that consistent with what you've read? Yeah, you know, we actually talked before about Andy Stump, who has a podcast called Cleared Hot. Um, He's a former Navy SEAL. I listened to some of his stuff, a lot of his uh, interview or reader mail episodes, and and he did one episode entirely devoted to uh, this incident um, that that I listened to. And that's been the majority of the, you know, perspective or, or take on it that I heard. But um, obviously, he speaks from a place of authority that 
you and I lack. Not only was he a Navy SEAL himself, but he actually ran the training in BUDS for many years as part of his role within the SEALs. And I, I think the obviously he had a very nuanced and, and in-depth perspective on this. But one of the most important things to me listening to him talk about it as a takeaway point was that when you are training people, to use your term, for a caustic world, the training environment has to be caustic. Otherwise, they're not going to be ready for it. And he he had numbers about uh, kind of mortality rates over the years that occurred during SEAL training. And speaking from the perspective of a former SEAL who went through the training and used to run the training himself, he, with all respect and compassion, stated that this happens every few years. This does happen. And uh, at least from his perspective, he did not think that was cause to lower the standards or make the training less severe because what those people face in the field is infinitely and unimaginably more intense and more demanding than whatever could be faced in a controlled training environment. And I think that maybe not obvious, but to me, a clear parallel to neurosurgical training as you know, we're thinking about candidate selection, so to speak, in this whole discussion about interviews, obviously we don't expect anyone to die during neurosurgery residency, but we do see people who, who drop out and fall out of training, whether by choice or by dismissal um, each year. And I think there's a bit of a correlate there where with a physically grueling, life-threatening, caustic training for uh, Navy SEAL selection, every few years you may expect there to be a mortality. Similarly, though we do our best job to select the best candidates for neurosurgical training, you can imagine that a process, however intense and however uh, scrupulous, is imperfect. And so every year you may expect people to fall out of neurosurgical training again, whether by choice or force. Well, th there is a lot at stake. I mean, there's the lives of patients, right? And right. Um, there's the lives of our trainees. And I'll, I'll bring up one point. Uh, when I was in medical school at Stanford, we all went to Seattle to do our sub eyes. That was the, that was 1995. So that was a time when everybody went to Seattle because uh, Dick Wynn was running the program and Mitch Berger and Mark Mayberg and um, Rich Ellenbogen were junior attendings. So at that time, uh, there was a gentleman that was uh, two years ahead of me. And um, he drove from Stanford Palo Alto to Seattle for a month, as did I, as did Steve Chang, as did Jerry Grant, who's the new chair at Duke. And what happened was on his drive back from his sub-I, he crashed his car and died. Wow. And, you know, I actually corresponded with this gentleman's family um, because I actually ran across his application. I'm Dick Wynn will probably shudder to hear this. And this gentleman was quoted as being the number one or two candidate in the country for that year. And they said, and they said, the, the people who interviewed him, that they reminded him of Cushing that he looked wow. like Cushing, that he acted like, I mean, this is a big deal. And this guy died. Okay. And I was talking to one of our trainees, one of our interns, he was going to see his girlfriend in Tampa. I said, listen, dude, you're working really hard. I'm not sure you should be driving back and forth to Tampa uh, on the weekends that you have off. I don't want to see you die in a car accident. And, and people were like, yeah, they blow it off. And it's like, okay, so you work that hard. Um, there's going to be some impact. You might fall asleep at the wheel. Like these kinds of elements of what we do, are really real. And, and I do want to take it back to the Navy SEALs in a sense that think about it this way. Um, there's a lot of discussion. I think the, the failure rate 
uh, had gone to something like one in uh, something, I want to say four and one to one in seven. It was a big change. And I don't quote me on the numbers, but they're saying a lot more people don't make it through through the, the training and the selection process, partly because the applicants are worse. And, you know, the obesity pandemic, um, the drug pandemic, all these selection criteria have kept more and more people out every year out of the U.S. military. The desire to join the military has dropped, right? So, so they're facing in in the special teams not only having to enforce the selection criterion, but also a lower or smaller candidate pool. And on top of all that, a greater demand. In other words, the government is asking for more and more special operators, right? Because they're seeing that as the way to fight wars or covert wars or whatever you want to call it, or, you know, staffing the Saudi Arabian uh, um, monarchy, right? They're, they're protected by U.S. Navy SEALs. I mean, most people don't know that. And so all these things are happening. And, and I want to draw the parallel back to us, which is, I remember when neurosurgery was early match. And I know that part of the reason from going from early match to regular match was that it costs more to be in a San Francisco match, right? But that really put the onus on the applicant that, look, if you were going to do neurosurgery, like you had to make that decision to apply early because there's a good chance you won't make it. So you can then maybe apply to general surgery. And then as I indicated with the talk with, uh, I think it was Jason Schwab, I almost like the late match better, which is dermatology, which is dermatology is like, look, um, guess what? Everybody wants to do dermatology. So if you don't match in derm, you lost a year of your life because you're just some loser who thought you'd match in derm, right? And I like that. I like the fact that they're saying you need to have skin in this game before you think you're going to be a skin doctor, right? Because if you devalue what we do, you're going to pay the price. So I, I do think that there are real parallels but, you know, I'm not I'm so far away from it now, JP, like I'm I'm 30 years away from it. Tell me what you're hearing from the younger folks. You know, it, it is really interesting. Um, one of the best ways that we have access to the perspectives of medical students and applicants uh, is meeting people who are doing external sub eyes when they visit Rush. This year, we, we didn't have any. We did have our own students who rotated with us. And, you know, right now, most of them are away on their external sub eyes. I'm really interested to talk with them when they return and see what things are like at other programs and what the experience was like getting out there in the field uh, this year after a couple years of everything being virtual. But everyone kind of as we've been talking with uh, the department side of things, people are stressed, people are confused. And I think this whole process of applying into a very competitive field putting your whole future and life on the line has always been stressful, has always been uh, something wrought with fear and, and uh, you know, validated concern for success, but add to it these changes and all these new components to the process. Particularly, I think the, the students I've talked to are stressed about the, uh, the preference signaling because like we've been discussing on our end, they don't know what to do with it. They don't know how it will be perceived they don't yet have a sense of where to allocate these expressions of interest and things. And, and so like any process in life, they're facing something novel for the first time, but they're also facing something that's new for everyone for the first time. And so there's always the fear that in a year of change, in a year of uh, trying new, new tools and new techniques, what if I'm the one who slips through the cracks, you know? And, and I'm sure that these are similar fears faced by the first folks in the virtual match during uh, the COVID pandemic. And so I think those are very valid concerns to have. And everyone is just trying to 
get the best advice they can and get uh, find the best avenues to represent themselves to programs, express their interests and uh, put their best face forward, even if they don't know how all these new tools and avenues are working. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You know, we, we didn't have uh, hardly any sub-eyes this year either. There was a technical glitch. This has never happened. We get tons of sub-eyes in Miami. And we I think we only had one from Indiana, and we had our own internal four students. And so um, we're at a kind of a, I don't call it disadvantage, but maybe it is, this year because um, just like you, we have not had a chance to properly screen these people, partly due to all these numerous fast changes that I, I get it. They, they've had to respond to all of the, and by the they, I mean um, the SNS or the folks at the ACGME or the RC, but it is definitely having an impact on us locally. And, and um, we, we meet regularly. Uh, Rick Komatar was just telling me the other day about how we're going to go through this process of selection, because it's, it's going to be a kind of a weird year. Um, and I think that the anxiety isn't of course, only on our side, of course, the applicants, uh, mirror that anxiety, right? The changes bring um, alterations to the selection process that shake things up, maybe for the better for some, but maybe for the for the worse for others. Yeah, and it, and it should be said, um, obviously, you and I being on the program side of this process at, at different levels in different institutions, but we're on the program side of things. And so we know our institutions say we are allowed to take external rotators that's all well and dandy, but I think there are many students at various medical schools around the country who may not be free to do external rotations or may be limited in the number of external rotations they can do. I know during uh, the COVID restrictions at the height of it, people uh, face different regulations about if they could leave the state for an external rotation or not, which obviously is very common within our field in the sub-I and application process. So even if we, the programs, put it out there like, oh, you know, you're welcome to come. We're taking external rotators. My heart goes out to any students at schools or in states around the country who are not allowed to accept our invitation for whatever different regulations or rules they're living under at their medical school. And to that end, we were talking before starting this episode, Dr. Wang, we, we did a good job, I think, in this little mini series of covering various different perspectives. We had someone informally talking to the SNS and the organized neurosurgery perspective. We had a chair, we had a program director. We weren't able to find, and I, and I tried, we weren't able to find someone who's going through the application process right now who was comfortable coming on air and talking about it publicly. So I wanna put out an invitation to our listeners. Any of you who are medical students who are applying to neurosurgery this cycle and going through this process, if you would be comfortable coming on air and talking about it, sharing your perspective, your concerns, and kind of airing things out with us, please reach out to us. You know, we, we say it all the time, neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter, on Instagram. Contact us. Uh, we can talk a little bit about how you'd be more comfortable coming on air if we leave your name out, that kind of thing. But we would love to get the perspective from someone actually going through this process right now if there's someone out there that would like to come on and talk with us. Yeah, I think I think uh, in terms of how people are approaching this, I've sensed that as well, just locally, uh, JP, that there is a lot of apprehension uh, coming out of COVID. And this, again, is a class of folks who started medical school 
and then were plunged into the pandemic, right? So there's there's a lot of things about their educational process that was different, and then maybe not being able to do rotations uh, last year uh, as much, right? A lot of places were still pretty locked down, I think. Uh, you yeah. guys still have restrictions on medical students? Uh, I don't, I honestly don't know if we have restrictions about hours in the hospital, but I do think that um, from the students at Rush, at least that I've talked to and different places around the country, even uh, as medical schools relaxed the like hours in the hospital restrictions that were placed during COVID, many, many aspects of medical training, even in the senior clinical years of medical school have remained virtual, if not for safety or restriction reasons, just for convenience, ease and cost. Yeah, it's, it's quite interesting to me. And I would add that, um, you know, it, what is the solution, right? People are like, well, okay, so we recognize the problem. So I would suggest that one of the solutions is just having open communication. If you're at a medical school that has neurosurgeons, obviously reach out to the people that you know there and ask them for their advice and their input and, and get an idea of what exactly is happening on the ground. Um, I feel like it's almost like there's been a curtain thrown over everybody with this kind of online interviewing. I mean, it wasn't just the interviews. People went on tours. They spoke at night at dinner about their experiences. Like all of that's been erased. And now that it's been happening for this will be the third year, right? The collective knowledge is erased. So everybody that's PGY two or below doesn't really have any information about the country anymore. Right. I mean, you're right. lucky that, you know, you went through this process. But I don't know that you can ask interns and PGY2s and have any concept of what's happening at other programs. No, I, I think that's a really good point because you are correct. I have a sense of various cities around the country that I had never visited. Programs, what their hospitals look like, what the personalities and the people are like among my own cohort, my own age group, as well as the attendings, which becomes very relevant as you're getting older and you're starting to think about uh, fellowship training, you're starting to think about where you want to live and and work and different hospital settings. And that is a, a, an experience and a body of knowledge and a group of friends and relationships that I built through that process that the people in the classes, the years behind me are missing out on. I would also say, and you know, this is a point that we've made a few times, but to flip that perspective back to the program side of things, I, I do still think it is invaluable to meet people in person and to meet them in person for uh, sub-eyes and, and elective rotations like this before the interview process, because in that same way that the applicant gets information about the community at large, we get information about the people who are applying, not just their CVs, not just their personal statements. I mean, this season alone, like, like I said before, we didn't have any external rotators at Rush, but... I've already been hearing stories from my friends around the country at different programs about, oh, we, we have this sub-I and that sub-I. This person's really strong. Um, there's all the typical stories. I heard a story last week of uh, a sub-I who was you know, standing by with uh, an intern doing an EVD, and the sub-I felt comfortable enough to say, well, you know, during my first EVD, I found this to be very helpful. And, and trying to give pointers to the resident the sub-I was observing. And that kind of thing. <laughs> Right. Like that's a huge personality flaw, right? That's a big red flag. And that's the kind of thing you miss out on if you only have 20 minutes talking to somebody over Zoom and a CV with publications. So I think having the in-person experiences, but also, as, as you just pointed out, Dr. Wang, having that network of friends and that community that you meet 
where you can text your buddy that matched somewhere across the country and say, oh, what, what's this girl like? Is she strong? Is she smart? Is she a sociopath? All these questions that we always ask. Um, I, I think having that community is invaluable. And I do worry about and fear these past few years how that kind of organic network hasn't been fostered in the newest people in our field. Yeah, I know. We, we, we represent in some ways the AANS, and I know there's been rifts within AANS and CNS over the past 50 years. But I would encourage, and if anybody from CNS is listening, Dr. Bambakitis, like maybe you should do something at your meeting because this will get medical students together. They used to sit and talk in the interview green room, right, in the waiting room, and everybody would share stories. And by the end of the day, people would be relaxed or go out at night and, and do that. We don't have an opportunity for that anymore. And um, I'd love for it to happen at AANS, but of course, AANS happens after the match and way too far before the interview process. But if the CNS folks are listening out there, here's some golden advice. Maybe you should put together a mixer so that medical students can get together and actually learn something about other places. Uh, it would be fun. I'm not saying it's going to generate what you want for your meeting, but it would be a great service to our trainees uh, out there. I mean, it, 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 that sense of community is being lost. You cannot get it on a uh, on a. I don't want to call it a Zoom, but whatever kind of like, you know, telepresence interview process you're going through. Um, and, you know, I think I think the, the best next substitute would be the people you do have in person. Reach out to them. Get ahead of them. Uh, you know, reach out to anybody that you think you might know and get their input. I was uh, I finally got onto the neurosurgery blog. What is it called? Um, it's not Uncle Harvey anymore. Um what is what is the blog site all the applicants use now? Um, well, you're, I mean, you're, yeah, Uncle Uncle Harvey is sadly sadly gone behind us. Um, well, you know, Kenny Liu was a USC medical student, and so Kenny Liu is an interesting guy because Kenny Liu uh, and and um, and knew Charles Liu and myself very well. And Kenny was great. He was just such yeah. a such I an think, incredible presence. Yeah, I think these days a lot of people use the student doctor network, but then Neurosurgery Hub is out there too. Neurosurgery Hub, that's it. That's yeah. it. Someone told me, you got to go on Neurosurgery Hub. They're talking about you or talking about so-and-so. And, uh, you know, it is, people need that. They need that outlet, even if there's some false or inappropriate or incorrect information. It's information still. At least people are talking, right? Right. Well, Dr. Wang, thank you for uh, coming on this tiptoe journey around the country and uh, various perspectives about this interview season. I think it's really interesting, um, but as we've all acknowledged at every round of these conversations, this is all future prediction. This is all prognostication. Who knows how this will actually turn out? So I, I think for our listeners, while this is kind of putting a bow on our pre-interview season uh, round of talks with this, obviously, as these things start to unfold, we're going to revisit this topic in real time while it's happening and certainly We'll be looking back at the end of this process to see what met our expectations, what uh, unexpected things came up, and, and, and how things actually turned out. I would again put out a call to any of our uh, listeners who are applying this year. If you're comfortable talking about the process from your perspective, please reach out to us, neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter, on Instagram, you name it, or anyone listening, if you have any feedback or questions or things you'd like us to address that we didn't touch on. We always love hearing from our listeners, but uh, otherwise we're going to return to normal episodes here out until the interview season kind of gets underway. Uh, Dr. Wang, always great talking with you. Thank you for uh, covering this topic with me comprehensively. Thanks, JP. Disclaimer time. 
The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.